This is the 2010 Jack Straw Writers Program. Curator Jared Lising interviewed writer Louise Spiegler about her work. I guess I'm wondering how your personal world or life plays out in your fiction. Um, I, I choose topics that have a lot of meaning for me. I don't think I write really confessional fiction, but I mean, you know, my heroes in the Lares, one of them is a Roman baker's son in the year 190 CE, and the other is a slave. And, you know, I couldn't be further away from the experience of either of those boys. But I was thinking about it this morning. You know, I I have two sons. I grew up with two brothers. The Lares are, they're these Roman gods. They're not well-known ones. But I like the idea of having double narrators. And I realized that a lot of the way that I write about boys has to do a little bit with my sons, you know, some of the gross things that they like to say or some of the funny things they say or some of the things that make them angry or the ways they like to to fool around. Some of that will come out of out of my sons' lives. And you know, so in general nothing is confessional, but there's threads, as you said, there's lots of threads that connect my work to my life. Now we'll hear selections from Louise's live reading at Jack Straw Productions. All right, so I'm taking you back in time, but I'm also, and yeah, we're going back to 193 CE, and that's very, very specific. It's the year that the Roman Empire was put up for sale and somebody bought it. It's true. (laughs) But I'm also going to take you back to being 14 or 15 years old. Um, I don't think Jared mentioned that I write for young people. So different mindset. This new novel is called The Lares. And the Lares are the Roman gods of the neighborhood. You would find shrines to the Lares at intersections within the city of Rome. And they're twins. They're twin boys who are drinking and having a good time, and they're there to protect you, the citizens. And the reason I called this book The Lares is because I have two narrators. They're both boys. One is, the first one you're going to hear from is Titus, who is a slave, And the second one you're going to hear from is Gaius, who is free um, and a baker's son and um, very passionate about the honor of his family. So we're starting with Titus, and he's a slave in the house of the senator Didius Julianus. He, by the way, is the man who is going to buy the Roman Empire and become the emperor. But Titus doesn't know that yet. He's just been summoned to speak to his master. The master reclined on a cushioned couch by a writing table with sunlight flooding in the window and blazing on the intricate mosaic on the floor. He looked up as we entered. Thank you, Romula. She inclined her head and melted out of the door, closing it discreetly behind her. I felt uneasy. But after the things I'd seen, I had sworn not to be intimidated by any man, I told myself what my grandfather would say if he were here. This is but an old man with a great belly. True, he is your master. He has the power of life and death over you. But if you do not fear death, then he is only an old man. Come, the master ordered, pointing a finger at a spot on the floor. I went and stood on it, looking him in the face as slaves are not supposed to do. Didius Julianus stiffened his back 
I felt his tiny red-rimmed eyes examining me. You are Titus the Pannonian, he said. I am not Titus the Pannonian, I thought. I was taken on the border of Pannonia, but I am of Dacia, though Dacia does not exist any longer for those of Dacian blood. Our farmlands and fortresses now house Roman colonies, and we for these many years are scattered and broken. But I am of Dacia, and I have been brought up to know it, and my name is my own, not this Latin name I've been given, so short it is like a dog's. I inclined my head. You are very quiet. He looked annoyed. I was told you spoke Latin. I speak Latin. Good. He was bald, and his head looked oddly shrunken compared to his body. Romula tells me you are skilled with herbs. Is that true? You can treat an illness. Oh, so that was it. I wondered what sickness he had. The cast of his skin was yellow and waxy, but not with jaundice or any such. And the little eyes were bloodshot, but perhaps only through overindulgence. Something, then, concerning the inner organs. But why should I care? This man had dared to put a price on my flesh. Why should I treasure his if it was failing? I was turning bitter, like lettuce left growing too long in the sun. Sometimes this shamed me. Even if his worst enemy had been ill, my grandfather would have treated him, as he treated the Roman soldier who fell into our hands when we were fools enough to think we might win against the legions. And though grandfather was free, and I... I am not. Still, I should follow his example. I can treat an illness, I told the master. Are you unwell? If I were, I'd go to a doctor, not a slave boy. I'm not interested in your fumbling remedies, quite the opposite. But if you can cure an illness, surely you can cause one? Would that be correct? Since the last harvest was gathered, I had been enslaved and branded, my father sent away in chains, my sister lost. I'd seen my village set alight and the women running into the mist. I wore, saw, sewn into the slave tunic they gave me, three gold coins with the head of our hero, King Decebalus, upon them. And I always took care that no one washed the tunic but me. When I was hauled to the slave market, I had to swallow these coins and later wash my own excrement off them in order to save them. So my master's question did not even make me blink. But it did make me reflect. A blue bottle was sizzling in the stripes of sunlight that fell from the shutters onto the writing desk. My mind whirred in time with the flies buzzing. Could I cause an illness? Of course I could. My master was no fool. Those with the power to heal have the power to sicken. It takes very little to change a cure to a curse. Didius Julianus knew that, and this would make me of great value to him. And I knew well that my closely hoarded gold coins would never buy my freedom. Yes, I said. A slave always says yes. The old man pulled himself slowly from the couch. His knees pained him, and I could almost hear grandfather's voice saying that had the senator not so much weight on him, his joints would have complained less. But once standing, he was straight and impressive. He had been a military governor, and he looked the part. He strode over to the table and took an old harvest apple from the bowl and held it up. Something one could paint onto an apple or a date. Do you follow? Is that within your ability? The mixture would have to be the same color as the fruit it tainted. I was not even astonished to find myself considering these details. 
Not an apple. Grapes, perhaps, but there aren't any now, I said. Much better in a sauce where you wouldn't see it. Good, he said. Romula will guide you to an herbalist. Buy and prepare what's needed. Mix it into a fish sauce when you return to the kitchen. Bring the bowl of sauce and bread here to my tablinium before the banquet tonight. For my guest. You can do this? Yes. A radiance of well-being shone from the senator's brow. He settled back against his cushions. You do me fine service. Now go. Domine, I asked. An illness. Just that. Not anything more. He looked annoyed at my stupidity. More, he said sharply. And if anyone sees you or suspects, I shall cut off your ears. Do you understand? I nodded. What was there to say? I did understand. So that's, um, that's Titus. And the next chapter is from the point of view of Gaius. And it's several chapters later in the novel. And he has just gotten himself into quite a bit of trouble. Um, he's been painting graffiti on Didius Julianus's front gates. And he got caught. And he got punished. And as he was leaving that night, um, he found that he'd been followed home by a slave boy named Titus. And this is the next morning. As soon as I heard a voice, I knew it had all gone wrong. I'd sworn I would wake up before the others and run to the storeroom. That way I could rouse the slave sleeping there and send him on his way, and no one would be the wiser. You can make yourself rise early, Grandma Memory told me. All you need to do is think of birdsong as you slide into sleep. But I hadn't slid. I'd plummeted like a stone down a well. Caius, Lavilla hissed in my ear. She was sitting beside me on my bed. From her low, insistent tone, I guessed she was trying not to wake Marcus. My head was fuzzy. In the dark, I could make out my sister's form, wrapped in her woolen stola, sitting as rigid as one of the fates. She held an oil lamp above me, the only light in the darkness, and I knew that if I didn't get up, and quick, she was going to allow a drop of oil to fall on my head. Groaning, I pushed back the covers, threw on a tunic, and followed her. Out into the courtyard, the chill of dawn slapped my face like a wet cloth. Stars spiked the sky, and the moon was low, as if worn out from its night's labor. Lavilla stopped and turned, and I smacked right into her. The smudges of flour on her clothes told the whole story. You've been in the storehouse, I said uneasily. However did you guess? Her face tightened. And unless you had some hand in it, brother, Hermes the Wanderer must have been playing jokes last night, for somehow, in among the Egyptian wheat, we've acquired a slave named Titus. He told you his name? Oh, Gaius, you idiot! She grabbed my wrist and yanked me after her, shaking with fury as she unlocked the storehouse. There lay Titus, sleeping like one who'd crossed Lethe under a pile of sacking. Lavilla crouched down beside him, pulling me with her. Look, she said crossly, and slid her hand to Titus's neck, delicately lifting a coarsely hammered torque. Suspended from the neck ring was a flat oval of bronze. Lavilla brought her oil lamp closer, and I read the words engraved on it. I am Titus, an escaped slave. Whoever returns me will be rewarded by my master, Didius Julianus. Woe to him who abets my crime. 
Would you consider this abetting a crime? Lavilla inquired. No, I said indignantly. I'm no thief. I had nothing to do with it. Oh, really? Really? He just he followed me home. At that moment, the black and gray mutt bounded in through the crack of the storehouse door, banging his table against the grain bins in ecstasy. I'd had to drag him out of the house last night, two times, yet here he was still. He launched himself against me where I squatted by Titus's side. Did that cur follow you home as well? Half of Rome seems to have taken refuge here, Lavilla observed. What else is lurking in the stores? A lost Syrian? A Pictish warrior who's mislaid his spear? An escapee from the gladiator school? I think this is all, I said meekly. <laughs> Maybe it would be better if we got that torque off him. The slave boy snored and rolled over. Oh, yes? And how shall we do that? Lavilla pointed to the back of Titus's neck. The ends of the torque were welded together. There was no clasp or hook. It was a perfect ring. I've seen this slave before. Lavilla's gray eyes were considering, her smooth brow furrowed. The goddess Minerva, I thought. That's who I'll paint her as someday. Though if she annoys me too much, I could depict her as Medusa. <laughs> Lavilla can be frightening if she wants to, that's for sure. Gaius, are you listening? I snapped to attention, holding the waggling dog down with a hand on his back. This is Didius Julianus's slave, Gaius, and in case your reading skills aren't quite up to scratch, we're committing a crime, or didn't you get that bit? One of the downsides of having the goddess of wisdom as a sister is that she always thinks you're a nitwit. What do you suggest we do, I asked. Return him? That was when I realized that Titus was awake. He'd been watching our squabble from under wary lids. It was the strangest sensation, as if a grain bin or amphora had sprouted eyes and was fixing them on us as we bargained over a fair price for it. You can't return me, he said. Wait a minute, Lavilla was regarding the Pannonian narrowly. You're, she snapped her fingers, you're the slave who knows how to. Titus ignored her. If you return me to my master, I will kill him. <coughs> Lavilla fell silent. The mud line at my feet gave a low whine. Titus half raised himself from the floor, only to suck in his breath and seize his arm. The grain sack fell away, and in the light of the oil lamp, I could see the cuts and dried blood and bruises on his body, the marks of his master's hands. And even though I knew it was wrong, I realized I could not bring myself to turn him in. Thank you. This podcast was produced by Jack Straw Productions as part of the Jack Straw Writers Program. The 2010 curator of this program is Jared Lising. Music performed by Sean Osborne and recorded as part of the Jack Straw Artists Support Program. Producer is Jenny Cecil Moore. Recording engineers are Mo Preventure, C.J. Lazenby, and Steve DeTori. Narrator is Alyssa Keene. And executive director of Jack Straw Productions is Joan Rabinowitz. The Jack Straw Writers Program is made possible with support from the City of Seattle Office of Arts and Cultural Affairs, For Culture King County Lodging Tax Fund, Washington State Arts Commission, National Endowment for the Arts, the Paul G. Allen Family Foundation, Arts Fund, Poncho, and individual contributors. All of the writers heard in this series are published in the Jack Straw Writers Anthology, 
available for purchase and featured online at jackstraw.org. Thank you for listening.